In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Our Bible study tonight from Book of Psalms, Psalm 31. Psalm 31. Uh, each psalm has a title, and the title of this psalm, To the Chief Musician, a Psalm of David. A Psalm of David means written by David the Prophet. To the chief musician, either there is instruction to the leader of the choir, or some father said the chief musician is our Lord Jesus Christ. In the Septuagint, the title is a little bit different. According to the Septuagint, the title, To the End. A psalm of David himself, an ecstasy. Uh, and I will come to this title later on. But something that Jeremiah is the author, claiming that verse 13 in this psalm begins exactly with the same words as Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 10. And also there are several other apparent references to passages in the book of Jeremiah. But if the title says a psalm of David, then it is of David, not of Jeremiah. And most probably, Jeremiah quoted David, you know, the book of Psalms, while he was writing his book. So, this psalm is written by David, and there is no mention of time or place. To help us to ascertain when, where, or one occasion this psalm was written. But some say David wrote it during his persecution by Saul, perhaps in the wilderness of Ma'un, pointing to the coincidence between what's written in verse 22 in this psalm, in my haste. And if you read First Samuel 23:26, we read that David made haste to flee. So they made connection between David made haste to flee to the wilderness of Ma'un, which mentioned in First Samuel 23, and the verse 22 in this psalm, in which he says, "In my haste." Other scholars said he wrote it during his son Epsilon's rebellion against him. But the general nature of suffering of the psalmist makes the psalm actually the voice of many of us, many believers throughout all generations. So when we feel we are going through a difficult time, this is one of the psalms that will help us when we pray it. It represents the continuous struggle suffered by a believer or by the Holy Church in the world and also the salvation and the conquest that would certainly follow this struggle. Many scholars said also it is a prophecy about the Lord Jesus Christ. Like St. Jerome says, the psalm at the opening contains the voice of the mediator himself. So the first verse in the psalm is like 
Jesus Christ speaking to the Father. Then, after this, of the people redeemed by his blood, in the person of the Prophet. What does mean the person of the Prophet? The Prophet delivers message from God to us. So Jesus Christ, because he revealed to us who God the Father is, now he is a Prophet. As in Hebrew chapter 1, we read, God spoke to our forefathers through the Prophets. Now he is speaking to us in his Son. St. Jerome continues and says, The Redeemer therefore said to the Father in thee, O Lord. As a prophet, he is speaking on our behalf. St. Augustine explained the Septuagint title. As I told you, the Septuagint title is different. Uh, It says, To the end, a psalm of David himself, and ecstasy. So, to the end, a psalm of David himself means the mediator is strong of hand in persecution. Mediator means Jesus Christ. So, this psalm was written to the end, to the fulfillment of time, to the time in which the mediator, Jesus Christ, will come to fulfill our salvation. And the word ecstasy, uh, which is added to the title, signifies a transport of the mind, transport of the mind, which is produced either by a panic or some supernatural revelation. That's what the word ecstasy means. All this are the words of St. Augustine. St. Augustine continues and says, But in this psalm, the panic of the people of God troubled by the persecution of all the heathen and by the feeling feeling of faith throughout the world is principally seen. He said we can find panic in this psalm because the believers are persecuted by the non-believers and also they are seeing the faith is feeling throughout the world. Many people are denying God. St. Augustine continues and says, But first, the mediator himself speaks. So in the beginning verse, that is the voice of the mediator. Then the people redeemed by his blood gives thanks. At last, in trouble, it speaks at length, which is what belongs to the ecstasy. So, he said, then this psalm speak at length about the time of trouble, and this actually belonged to the ecstasy. But the person of the prophet Jesus Christ himself is twice interposed, was interrupted his voice, near the end and at the end. And this psalm is recommended by St. Athanasius to Marcellinus as most appropriate to the Christian who for the name of the Master are enduring attacks of the enemies. So St. Athanasius said, 
if you are enduring attacks from Satan, read this psalm, pray this psalm, Psalm 31. This psalm is 24 verses. From verse 1 to 8, a petition for salvation and trust in God's answer. From 9 to 18, trouble and trust. 19 to 22, personal and public praise. 23 and 24, a call for all God's people to praise Him. Uh, we will actually study first 12 verses, half of the psalm from 1 to 12. So let me start reading from verse 1. In you, O Lord, I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in your righteousness. So there are three sentences here. First one, in you I put my trust. Second one, let me never be ashamed. Third one, deliver me in your righteousness. If prayer to God for help in a special time of trouble is the main object of the psalm, that's the main object of the psalm. So the expression of the full trust in God is a secondary object. Because as I told, this psalm is about suffering and it's call uh, to God to deliver me. But this expression of full trust in God is maintained throughout the psalm. Many times when we go through trouble, we start to question the existence of God. Not in theological man, a theological manner, but we say, where is God? Why he allows us to suffer? Aren't we his children? And this reflects lack of trust. But David, in the time of his suffering, said, in you, O Lord, I have put my trust. This is the reason why the psalmist thus appeals to God, because he put his trust in the Lord. It is his firm confidence in God, in his character, in his promises, in his ability to deliver David in the time of danger. That's why he said, I put my trust. He did not say, I have put my trust, or I have trusted you, or I will trust you. But he said it in the present, in, in, in a, as a continued act. So I trust this was a very considerable thing to do in this time of his distress. As if he's saying, I always trust you, whether in the time of ease or in the time of hardship. The, the Lord is always to be trusted in. We do not know the precise nature or time of trouble, as I told you in the introduction, other than it, this trouble severely affected David and made him desperate of life. But nevertheless, in spite of all these circumstances, David proclaimed his trust in the Lord. Despite the extremity of his danger, his plea, belief in God is firm, 
he actually trusts that God will defeat his enemies and will deliver David and restore him. That's why he told him, let me never be ashamed. He was not ashamed to call upon the Lord. Also, he considered it appropriate that God answered by never allowing his servant to be ashamed. So, before this trouble, God never allowed David to be ashamed before his enemies and adversaries. And because of this experience, now David is asking, let me never be ashamed. Never. Never means what? Neither in this world or when you come to judge the world in your second coming. Please, let me never be ashamed. Neither now or in the age to come. The believer has no reason to be ashamed of anything in this life. The only thing we should be ashamed of is sin and the imperfection of our own righteousness. Other than this, the believer should not be ashamed. Then the third prayer, he said, deliver me in your righteousness. Your righteousness means your justice. Righteousness from the word right, right and wrong. So righteousness means doing what is right, to be just and to do what's right. Uh, God would never forsake those who have put all their trust and confidence in him. And David knew there was no acceptance with God, nor justification before him, nor any deliverance and salvation from sin and death, but by the righteousness of God. And what I mean by, by righteousness of God? Jesus Christ, when he came, he fulfilled all the law. As he said to David, to, sorry, St. John the Baptist, uh, we, uh, we ought to fulfill all the righteousness of the law. Why? Why did he pray? Why did he fast? Why did he do ministry? Why? Because he fulfilled the righteousness of the law. Knowing that none of us will be able to fulfill all the righteousness righteousness of the law. So when we abide in him, we'll be one with him. So his righteousness will be considered my righteousness. My prayer without the prayer of Jesus is nothing. But when I pray in the name of Jesus, meaning I am one with him, so I'm standing before the Father in his Son, in his Son, my prayer will be accepted. That's what, what I meant. There is no acceptance with God. There is no justification before him. There is no deliverance. There is no salvation from sin and death except by, by the righteousness of Christ. And this is what we do in the baptism. In the baptism, we bring this child and we bury him in the water of baptism. Then he will rise, a new creation in Jesus Christ. Now he is righteousness in Christ. He is righteous in Christ. He received the righteousness of Christ to be his own 
righteousness. That's why we dress him in white. Isaac the Syrian says, He who dedicates himself to God once and forever would pass through life with a comfortable mind. If you commit yourself to God, then your journey in this life will be with a comfortable mind. Verse 2. Bow down, bow down your ear to me. Deliver me speedily. Be my rock of refuge, a fortress of defense to save me. So in, vir- in verse 2, actually, there are also three prayers. The first one, bow down or incline your ear to me. Second one, deliver me speedily. Third one, be my rock and refuge, a fortress of defense to save me. Some scholars applied this verse to Christ, as if when David said, bow down your ear to me, then Christ humbled himself, bent down, and took upon himself our form, our humanity and became obedient to the point of death on the cross for our sakes. Then David said, deliver me speedily, which shows that he was in a great danger. The time is a very important factor here. His situation required speed. So David did not doubt God's deliverance but his request for a speedy deliverance. He did not ask us for deliverance. He is sure that God will deliver him, but he was asking for a speedy deliverance. David is asking God to be for him a shelter and security from his enemies. When he told him, be my rock of refuge, a fortress of defense, to save me. The prayer to God that he may be that which we know he is. Meaning, David knew that God is a fortress, a rock. So when he says to God, be a rock to me, rock of refuge, then as if he is saying to God, please be who you are. I know that you are a rock, so be who you are, manifest this to me. David is asking God to be what he is, rock of refuge, and to manifest himself in action to be what he is when he said to him, a fortress of defense to save me, fortress of defense to save me. So, in order for God, in reality, and in our feeling, we know Him by experience. The knowledge of God comes on two levels, by faith and by experience. So when David said, be a rock of refuge, be a fortress of defense, as if he is saying to God, I want you, God, 
to be in reality and in my feeling, in my experience, the God that I believed in him only by faith. I believed that you are rock, that you are fortress of defense. Show me, reveal this to me, make it manifest to me. Again, Isaac the Syrian says, the believer does not wait for the time of temptation to seek refuge in God, but seeks God first to be his refuge when temptation dwells. So he is saying basically, not when there is affliction, then at this time I go to God and ask God to be a rock of refuge to me. He said, doesn't work this way. But you need to be seeking God all your life to be your refuge in general, whether there is hardship, attack, persecution or not. You are asking God to be refuge. So when the temptation comes, God already is your fortress and your refuge. So David prayed for God to be his rock and fortress in the future because he has always looked at him as his rock and fortress in the past. Because he looked at God as rock and fortress in the past, that's why he is asking God to be the same in the future. Verse 3 For you are my rock and my fortress. I experienced this in in the past. Therefore, for your name's sake, lead me and guide me. St. Gregory says, Notice the place is of little avail. You cannot blame my weakness. I cannot blame my weakness on the place. On the place. As long as the Spirit of God is with me, then where I am is not important. And St. Gregory gave us some examples. Satan sinned in heaven. Adam sinned in paradise. Lot, actually he was a saint in Sodom, but after left Sodom, he sent with his two daughters in the mountain. David did not ask for rescue because he deserved it. He did not say to God, rescue me and deliver me because I deserve it. I am righteous. But he did not say this. He said, for your name's sake. So you can see here, David is saying that his entire faith is in the Lord. And David believed if the Lord led him and guided him, as he said, lead me and guide me for your name's sake, it would be honor to God and uh, honor to the name of God. So, David trusted God as we explain. So now David is saying, oh my God, be my director. Lead me and guide me. (coughs) Verse 4. Pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me, for you are my strength. The psalmist here desires that the Lord 
may lead him in the way of truth and path of righteousness according to his word. He wants God to be a guide, lead me and guide me. A guide for him with his counsel and through the Holy Spirit that he might walk in the way in which he should go. As David said in another psalm, the last psalm we, we prayed in the first hour of the Agbeya, cause me to know the way in which I should walk, for I lifted up my soul toward you. Uh, David knew his enemies wanted to trap and to destroy him, like um, uh, f- fishermen who actually cast their nets for a catch. That's why he said, deliver me from the net. So David knew his enemies wanted to trap and destroy him through their nets, by using their nets. But he also knew that God would rescue him even from clever and determined enemies. So even my enemies might clever, and they are clever in deceiving, but God can deliver them. Some scholars say that many were the nets which Satan laid for our Lord Jesus Christ. Satan tried to actually put many nets for the Lord, like the temptation in the wilderness. And Satan doesn't act by himself most of the time, but he employs his instruments. For example, he can use the natural impulses of the human body to trigger sin like lust, so that's a net. Or hunger and thirst, and that's what he used with Jesus Christ. When Jesus was hungry after fasting 40 days, he came to him and he wanted to tempt him. So hunger and thirst can be a net or the temptation of the wicked. That's why David said, pull me out of the net. Net can be the lust of the flesh, the lust of eye, and the pride of life. So when he said, pull me out of the net, means, or this implies, that the enemies of David were shrewd and crafty as well as they were mighty. So if they could not conquer him by power, maybe they would capture him by deceit. That's why I said, you know, no, the, the, the bird doesn't know where the net is cast for him. That's why I don't know where, the, where is the net, where is the deceit. So we ask him, pull me out of the net. can apply it, pull me out of the internet, those who are addicted to the social media. Our own spiritual enemy are of the same orders, because they are the serpents of spring, and seek to catch us by their deceit. Then verse uh, 5, into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. 
Who said into your hand I commit my spirit? The Lord Jesus Christ. So the Savior used the same expression on the cross when he gave his last breath. You can read it in Luke 23, verse 46. David, when he said this verse, he didn't mean to die. David was not thinking of submitting his soul into the hand of the Creator when he wrote the psalm. As the Lord, when he said this verse, he meant, I'm going to die right now. David may only intend to commit himself, soul and body, into the divine protection. When he, when he said, uh, into your hand I commit my soul, he said, you know, not only my body needs protection, but my soul also needs your protection. David wanted to pre- preserve it from the attacks of the enemies, not only the physical enemies, the human being, but also the spiritual enemies. As I told you, most likely death was not in his thought at that moment. Uh, because David was alive so he did not think about death um, but he wanted God to deliver not only his body but his soul from the troubles and the dangers that's why he trusted his spirit to God however if David here was looking to himself as a dying man. Then by these words, he puts his departing soul to the hand of God. And because when we die, the spirit returns back to God. So David understood that his surrender to God, his submission to God, was appropriate because it was God who redeemed him. If God is the one who redeemed me, redeemed me, he purchased me, then it's very, very proper to submit myself to him. So that's why he said, into your hand, I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. So why David submitted himself to God, number one, gratitude because God rescued him several times before and he will rescue him right now. So that's number one. Number two, recognition that God has purchased him. And because of this he said, you know, the natural response is to surrender myself to you. St. Athanasius says, the souls of all good men were by these same words entrusted into the same loving care. And as Jesus, during the time of his death, said, Father, into your hand I submit my soul, now actually all the righteous people, when they die, actually God sent uh, his angel to, to receive their souls. Christ, desiring that his people should have no less secure place of refuge at the hour of their death, uh, that's why he said, Father, into your hand I submit my soul. So anyone in Christ will actually have the same experience. His soul will, will go into the hand of the Father 
not to his. And, and David said, for you have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth, which may be understood, redeemed me, temporal redemption of his life from his enemies, or, uh, and how God encouraged him to commit himself to, to, to the Lord, and then God will deliver him. Or you have redeemed me, it can be also in a prophetic way, he's speaking about the spiritual eternal redemption, not just the physical redemption or the temporal redemption. The redemption from sin by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and David here speaks about it as if it happened in the past, although it, it will happen in the future. Yani from David's perspective, the crucifixion was future for David. But when we read the letters of St. Paul, God had the plan of our redemption before the foundation of the world. Then he said, O Lord, God of truth. Another reason why David felt that he must surrender his soul to the Lord, not only because uh, God has redeemed him, but there is another reason. It is God is a God of truth. That's why it was good and appropriate for David to surrender his life to God, because God is a God of truth. And you can see it follows well. After he said, into your hand, then if I'm going to submit my, my, surrender my soul to the hand of the Lord, then I should, should hate all other hands of useless idols. I cannot serve the Lord and serve the idol, serve the Lord and serve the money. So David's surrender to God meant that he also had to resist the recognition or the worship of idols. He did not say, you know, I am going to worship God, I know it's the truth, but if anyone wants to worship idol, let him worship. No. Uh, David surrendered himself to God and also resisted the recognition or the worship of idols. Although uh, David actually described these idols as useless idols because they have no power to speak or to save. The idols cannot save you or have power to speak to you. Then verse 6, he said, I have hated those who regard useless idols. See, he was speaking about the useless idols. Useless means have no power to speak or to deliver or to save. I have hated those who have regard useless idols, but I trust in the Lord. So, I have hated not the people, but their actions, their ways. These people followed useless idols, but I trust in the Lord. While they trust in vanities, vain things, and in lying vanities, we the children of God would trust in the Lord 
who is God, who is all sufficient, he is my shepherd, and therefore I shall lack nothing. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Verse 7 I will be glad and rejoice in your mercy, for you have considered my trouble, you have known my soul in adversity. So, having relied on the mercies of God, David will be glad and rejoice in the mercy of God. Even before the deliverance, but he has confidence that God will deliver him no matter what. So, happiness and joy were the outcome of David's surrender and submission to God. Uh, as you know, during these days we have the family convention in St. Stephen Retreat Center. And this morning I give a lecture about obedience. And the title of the lecture is Joy of Obedience. And here the same meaning, happiness and joy were the outcome of David's surrender, David's obedience and submission to God. There is joy and happiness when you submit and surrender to the Lord. That's why he said, I will rejoice, I will be glad in your mercy, for you have considered my trouble, you have known my soul in adversity. So you can see here how David's heart was overflowed with gratitude, thinking of all what God had done for him. David was happy because he knew that God did not ignore him in the time of trouble. You considered my trouble. You have considered my trouble. When God looks upon one's trouble and consider it, He looks with an eye of compassion on the sufferer and he will grant him some relief. God will sympathize with us considering the nature of our trouble, considering also our weakness to bear it and the best way and the best time to deliver them out of it is only known for God. Uh, Also another interpretation to you have considered my trouble, you have considered my trouble. Some scholars refer this verse to our Lord Jesus Christ, saying, how did he consider our trouble? Because he took our trouble upon himself. He carried our sins and he became sin for us. He carried our curse and became curse. That's how he considered our trouble, by taking our trouble upon himself. We read in Exodus chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, I have surely seen the oppression of my people. I know their sorrow, 
So I have come down to deliver them. So God did not only look on the affliction of the Israelites, but he made an action. He himself took it upon himself. He came down to deliver them and to bring them up to a better place. Also, David was happy, not only because God considered his trouble, but also David knew God had deep, substantial knowledge of David, even to the soul, in his seasons of adversity. As he told him, you have known my soul in adversities. So David say, I'm happy, because you know the deeper things, how my soul actually feels during the time of hardship. Uh, sometimes when people, they are in hardship, they come to us, and the common word, uh, nobody understands me. Nobody can feel what I am feeling right now, which is true. Sometimes nobody can understand, but only God actually can has the knowledge of the soul of, of David during the time of adversities. And God has not stood distant from David, but has shown David love and care. This gladness was in the midst of trouble. And this should be the way Christian act when problems come. We should put our trust in God. Then our gladness in the Lord will come as a natural outcome. We should know that our gladness and happiness should not depend on circumstances externally, but it comes from within. By the way, God did not promise that we will never have tribulation in this world, but he promised to be with us in our troubles and to help us when we face problems. So David was happy because he knew that God answered his prayer to be delivered from the snares of his enemies. That's why in verse 8 he said, And have not shut me up into the hands of the enemy. You have set my feet in a wide place. So, David, he said, you have not shut me up into the hands of the enemy. The original reference was no doubt to the city of Kila in the wilderness of Zeph and Ma'un where David was nearly captured by Saul and his army. You can read this story in 1 Samuel 23, verse 7. So David was about to be captured by King Saul, but God did not shut him up into the hand of his enemy. God delivered him. And you have set my feet in a wide place. Meaning what? David was happy because God did not only preserve him from his enemies, but he, God also set David in a place of safety and security. In a wide place means in a place of safety and security.
then actually From verse 9, the tone of the psalm changed. He said, Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am in trouble. My eye wastes away with grief. Yes, my soul and my body. The tone of the psalm changed. This part of the psalm reminds us of Psalm 6 and also of Jeremiah's complaints. That's why some scholars said it was written by Jeremiah. The previous section of the psalm from verse 1 to 8 ended with trust and gratitude to God. But here David once again took up the spirit of lamentation, showing that both rest and adversity come to God's people in season. All of us, Sometimes we, uh, we experience rest, sometimes we experience adversities. Yet, in his trouble, what David did, David looked again to the Lord. He follows up his prayer for mercy by an explanation of his need of mercy. He said, have mercy on me. Why? He start to explain, for I am in trouble. My eye wastes away with grief. Yes, my soul and my body. This trouble spoken of here has weakened his body and his spirit. He is in trouble, in afflictive trouble, hard depressed and distressed. And with continual weeping, his eye is almost consumed or wastes away. He's about to become blind. He has cried so much that his eyes had run out of tears. David described his pitiful condition in terms that seem to be taken from the book of Job. Also, he said, my soul and my body my eyes waste, not only my eyes, but my soul and my body also. So he means my whole body is wasting now. His sorrow are inward and penetrating and his mind is oppressed. David, from his youth, was known to be a brave man, did not fear death. He killed the Goliath. He killed a lion and a bear. Yet in the moment of weakness, he felt that his whole life was spent with grief. As he said in verse 10, For my life is spent with grief, and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity, and my bones waste away. So he felt... His whole life was spent with grief. In time of tribulation, most of us, we forget the days of peace and joy and count our days as if our life is unceasing series of pain. Forget completely about the days of peace and joy. But Prophet David turned such bitter feeling into psalms, into prayer, 
into which lamentation mixed with praise. So part of the psalm is lamentation, another part is praise and thanksgiving. Supplication with thanksgiving, weeping with exaltation. So he means that his life is a life of suffering and distress, and by grief his days are shortened. So his life suffering and distress, and because of grief his days are shortened. For my life is spent with grief, my years was sighing. Uh, my grief vanished, my years, my age vanished with sighing, sighing because of crying. My strength failed because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. David's trouble made him a man of sorrow. Here he is a type, a symbol of Christ, who was acquainted with grief. David acknowledged that his affliction were merited by his own sins, but Christ suffered for ours. David suffered because of his own sins, but Christ suffered because of our sins. He said, my strength fails because of my iniquity. The source of all his grief and trouble is his sin. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. He regarded all this trouble, whether directly from the hand of God or from man, as a fruit of sin. And whether he refers to any particular sin in his life as the cause of this trouble, or the sin of his nature as the source of all evil, it's not clear. We don't know whether he is referring to a certain sin or just the sinful nature of his uh, life. In his affliction, he was seen by his enemies as an evil man on whom the anger of God had dwelt. This verse 11, I am a reproach among all my enemies, but especially among my neighbors, and am repulsive to my acquaintances. Those who see me outside flee from me. So in his affliction, he was seen by his enemies as an evil man on whom the anger of God dwelt. That's why I am a reproach among all my enemies, especially among my neighbors. And am I repulsive to my acquaintances? Those who see me outside flee from me. His misery became for them a cause of scorn and mockery. They mock him. Has not that what happened to the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who was unjustly delivered to trial? It's the same happened to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was mocked, ridiculed, spat in his face. <clears throat> As Isaiah prophesied about the Lord Jesus Christ, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. Isaiah 53, verse 3. What is more painful was that not only his enemies, but David's friends feared to be connected to him. They abandoned him. 
lest they would be counted as taking his side against King Saul. He felt their reproaches more keenly and intensely and strongly. So the reproach from his friends was more intense and strong than the affliction from his enemies. Those who are nearest and closest can injure and wound the hardest and severest because they were supposed to know him. So because his neighbors and his friends knew him, that's why the wound by them was severe. They knew he did not deserve to be treated this way. And even those who met him in public avoided him, afraid of suffering persecution themselves by any sign of sympathy. They were afraid if they sympathized with him, King Saul will persecute him. That's why he said, those who see me outside flee from me. Verse 12, which will be the last verse for our Bible study tonight. I am forgotten like a dead man, out of mind. I am like a broken vessel. So David said, I am forgotten like a dead man. All David's youthful heroism, he was a hero. And his bravery was now got from, gone from remembrance. I am forgotten. He had been the savior of his country during the time of Goliath. But his services was, were buried in forgetfulness. He was forgotten like a dead man. St. Augustine commented here and said, They have forgotten me as if I were dead from their hearts. They have forgotten me as if I were dead from their hearts. I am like a broken vessel. Broken vessel means useless. If you have vessels broken, useless. A useless and worthless thing cast aside and forgotten. Broken vessel of no value to anyone only fit to be thrown away. Sad condition for King David to be this way. This actually will conclude our Bible study tonight. Glory be to God forever. Amen. Amen.